Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Luke 18. That's what you call the quick start. Let's go right to the scriptures. Luke 18, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he'll see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You know, this amazing parable that Jesus tells his guys to make a point. He goes, hey, let me tell you a parable so that you know that you always got to pray and that you can never give up. He said, hey, there in this town, there was a guy, he's the worst type. And there's a woman who's looking for justice from her adversary. Now, the woman would represent the people of God. The adversary would represent the devil and the dark forces for all the injustice that he has done to the people of God. And he says, you know, even this unjust guy who doesn't fear God he will give her justice if she shows true faith by her persistent pleading with God. He says, and if that's how this person is, how much more will God, who is absolutely just, totally give you justice and take care of you? But that's not really the question. Is God going to be faithful to you? The question is, when Jesus comes back, is he going to find faith on earth? And there's going to be real faith here. You know, the Bible is full of accounts of God asking man questions, of the creator asking the creation questions. It starts in Genesis 3 when man and woman sin against God and they hide themselves from God and then God's walking in the cool of the day and he calls out and he says, man, where are you? And really, that has been the question that God has echoed through every generation. And it's really even the question that God is asking you as you come here on a Sunday morning. Where are you really at this morning? In the book of Haggai, when the people went back to rebuild, but then stopped rebuilding the walls of God and the city of God, Haggai says, is, it, is the time come for you to build your own panel houses while the house of God lies in ruins? The answer being, no, it's not time to build our houses. It's time to build God's house. Amen. Ezekiel, he says, son of man, 
Can these bones live? Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You feel like dry bones. You go, can I really be a true Christian? Can I really overcome? Can I really live the way I see some of the people around me living? Can I do this? These bones can live. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the apostles, who do people say that I am? Peter goes, oh, I got this one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here he asks us, when the son of man comes back, will he find faith on earth? I think it's the million-dollar question. Is when Jesus comes back and assures we are sitting here today, he will one day return. And when that happen, happens, is he going to look at San Francisco and see real disciples? Real people living by faith. I got three questions for you this morning. And it's the title of my lesson, Three Questions of Faith from Your Creator. God want to ask you a couple questions this morning, and we've got to give them some answers. My number one question for you is, what are you doing here? It's fair enough. It's fair enough to ask, like, why did you really come to church this morning? Let's turn over here to 1 Kings 19. God wants to know. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Give me an amen when you're there. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. We'll stop right there. You know, it's an amazing account here of possibly the quintessential prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah. The man who is the head of the company of prophets, the trainer of prophets. In the chapter before, Elijah just goes toe-to-toe in one of the greatest showdowns, not of the Bible, but of all of history, with one prophet of God and 450 prophets of the false god Baal. And he says, hey, today we're going to find out who the true God is. You go ahead and take yourself a bull. You cut it up. You build an altar. You put it on that altar. And the God that answers by fire, he's the true God. 
the 450 prophets of Baal take on the challenge. They go, we'll do that. So let's do it. They cut up the bull. They put it on the altar. They start to scream and yell, and they start cutting themselves and, and hurting themselves, trying to evoke these gods. All the while, Elijah is taunting him. He goes, hey, where's this god at, man? Is he on vacation? Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's away. And nothing happens. Then he goes, all right. Give me a bull. He cuts it up, puts it on an altar. He says, but that's not enough. Let's pour water on it. More water. More water. Put so much water on it. It fills the whole altar. And then he prays, and fire comes down from heaven, scorches everything, and licks up the water, and then scorches the 450 prophets. That just happened. And then this gal, Jezebel, comes after him. One gal. Just one girl comes after him, and he goes under a broom tree and wants to die. You ever had that happen to you? Where you're like, for some reason, this hardship, even though it wasn't as hard as previous hardships, is really getting to you? Why? Because you've been doing this a long time. And you've gone into a weakened state. Here, he, he says, you know, the, the journey is too much. He goes, I'm no better than my ancestors. He doesn't just want to die physically. He's ready to lose his salvation. That's what he's saying. My ancestors, they died in the desert. They didn't make it into a promised land. You know what? Maybe I can't make it to heaven. I'm not good enough. I'm just like them. You know what? Just kill me. Let me lose my salvation. Let me lose it all. The journey is too much. He just wants to go to sleep. You ever feel like that after you had a good, you remember when you were a kid and you got a good whooping? Right? You just, you just want to go to bed. It's just that peaceful sleep. You tell yourself, tomorrow's a new day. Just, it's going to be all right. I'll wake up tomorrow. <laughs> That's how Elijah felt. And what does... The angel do He goes, hey, get up, man. Get something to eat. Sometimes, you know, the, it, the easiest thing is you just got to wake up and have a really good quiet time. But I would dare say that there's a good amount of us even here this morning that did not have a quiet time this morning. Some of us even talk, told ourselves, well, my devotional is church. Isn't that good enough, right? And then you wonder why you're tired. Here he gets a little bit of food, and sometimes we do this, we go, well, I tried it. Jason said, have quiet times. I did on Monday. I felt the same way Tuesday. Oh. Well, he makes him get up again. He says, no, no, you need to keep doing this. Keep eating the, the bread. Keep drinking the living water. Keep getting into God's word. It says the second time he got strengthened from that food, and then he goes, all right, I'm going back to the mountain of God. Let's pick it back up. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. And I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Drop down to verse 14. He says, then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I am, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put to death your, your servants, the prophets, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came 
go to the desert road of Damascus. You know, I think sometimes in our Christian life, God wants to find out what you're really doing here. And it's usually after some success. Here he's been very successful. He just took out all the prophets of Baal. He's cranked his Bible talk. He's been successful in the ministry. That kind of buzz is over. And now he wants to know what's really in Elijah's heart. What was it really all about all along? You know, it says in Proverbs 20, verse 27, the lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. The creator wants to ask the creation, what are you really doing here? Really, what is all this about for you? What are you hoping to get at the end of all this? You know, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, let's turn over there if you would. Hebrews 11. In verse 5, we'll read. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not have to experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Here it says that if you do not have faith, you don't in the very least believe that there's a God that's involved, you just cannot please God. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him with this type of faith. Well, let's turn over to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 and verse 1. It says... After this, the word Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. You know, it says in Hebrews 11, without faith you can't please God because you have to believe that he in the very least exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And then all of us have to ask ourselves, well, what is that reward? What is the thing I'm hoping to get out of this? And here it says in Genesis 15, that reward is God's. But some of us right now just said, hey, man, that's awesome. Some of us just went, oh, no. Because I kind of want a lot more than that out of this. I mean, that's great, but that's it. I kind of wanted, I wanted to get married, and I wanted to get in this, and I wanted to do ICCM, and I wanted everybody to throw me on their shoulders and run me around the church and praise my name, and I wanted everybody to think I was awesome, I expect to be in the Good News email, and I, I mean, I mean, what, 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 what that, just God? God's all you're going to get out of this. The creator was asking the creation, what are you doing here, Elijah? What is this all really about for you? You know, I I love the disciples so much, and I love the culture that we build in the church, and I love that people could come into the church and have pure relationships, and it's a miracle every time, and Christian said it, you know, just weeks back, I was standing here, or Rob and Renee, and despite that Rob's no puppy, and he's 50 years old, and Renee is 
quite younger than that, amen, uh, they had their first kiss at the altar right in this very spot. First kiss, never kissed before. And Sarah and I just are about to celebrate. We celebrate it due to our schedule early, but it's actually next month. But we celebrate our, our eighth year anniversary. And in the same way, even though I was in Long Beach in a different church, same family, same expectation, we had our first kiss at the altar eight years ago. And it's such a, a great thing, but I, I love it in the kingdom. You, you know, there's kind of like a road to romance. And, you know, it starts off with going on dates. And you go on pure dates with people, and there's, there's no, like, flirting or nothing like that. And you go on pure dates with sisters. You always go on a couple uh, double dates. And, uh, you know, I, I never forget. But then you eventually meet somebody that you kind of like. And I'll never forget Christian when he walked into the GLC like three years ago, and he saw Devin. And he's like, And he gave her the 50-yard stare. Like, that stare just meant so much. And, but then you meet someone and you get really interested, and then you get really interested in them. Yeah, I'll never forget, you know, Christian got really into Devin, and then Devin went on a date with uh, one of the armor bearers there in, in Los Angeles, and it was like a gala, right? And so the brother brought flowers for her, and they took a picture, just, just a date, just friends, you know? And it went up on Facebook, and I'd never seen Christian discouraged ever, <laughs> right? Like, ever. Never even close. But he... He walked into service on that set. First, he sent me the picture and text at like 1.30 in the morning. Like just. He was, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he sent me the picture. And then the next morning, he walked in like he had no bones in his body. It's like a, know, but I already inquired and found out that it was just a, a kingdom date. Nobody started dating. And he goes, hey, bro. He goes, yeah, man. It's, it's God's in control. <laughs> I said, bro, it's going to be all right. She's not dating. And you just seen that like the bones came to life like in Ezekiel. It was an incredible thing. And then you eventually start to date, and it's an amazing thing. And, you know, I, I love the brothers. They just keep taking it higher in these, these, in these proposals to be a girlfriend. You know, I mean, Rashad wrote a whole song. It was incredible. It could go top of the charts. Will you ride with me? The, he had, like, backup singers going, will you ride with him? too far and people start dating and it's awesome and it's pure and it's incredible but then eventually you start dating it gets kind of serious and then the brother tells because once you start dating you don't say hey love you sis anymore now you can say love you sis to everybody but that sister yeah. 
right? Like, you love everybody but her. Can't say that to her, right? So immediately, the, everybody starts to guard their hearts, and rightly so. But then you have the moment where you, like, you profess that you're in love with them. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Sarah and I, we did it in front of our disciples. I had Tim and Leanne Kern in there, and I was like, hey, um, I just, I have, I have to tell you now, uh, I'm in love with you. And it was uh, easy, right? It's, and it's a moment. And there's kind of an unspoken thing amongst the sisters, I know this is true, is that once the brother says, I'm in love with you, that that is then part of the road that now we're getting close to engagements. And it's like, okay. And now you go, you go, you all know that. Why are you acting like I just told you something? You know that. That's day one. Everybody knows that. It's, uh, and it's like, okay, he said, and, and we have like little timetable. Well, he told me he loves me on April 3rd, and now it's October. So according to the discipleship handbook, uh, he should be asking me in 2.4 weeks. And you got the whole thing down. You know, if it rightly so, you should know before you get married that the person actually loves you, right? Before you commit to forever, you should know that the person actually loves you. But it's the same way with God. He, before he's going to commit to forever, he wants to know, what are you doing here? Do you actually really love God? Is it all about God for you? You know, I love the parable of the sower. It says in Mark 4, you don't have to turn there. But it says, the desire for other things comes in and chokes the word and makes it unfruitful. And I thought about that verse in a way I'd never thought about it before. Because it implies that these things that were not there before. And the, it was fruitful. But then these things come in, the desire for other things, and they make it unfruitful. And I believe what God is calling us to do is go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Turn to John 15. John 15 and verse 1. It says, John 15 verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You know, this goes against our American way of thinking. We believe that if I'm fruitful, if I'm successful, if I do good, I deserve a raise. I deserve a trophy. I should be employee of the month. I, I mean, something, give me a promotion, right? Not in the kingdom. 
Let me tell you in all your hard work, your faithfulness, giving God your best and your time, your finances, being willing to go anywhere, do anything, give up everything. You know what that gets you? Pruning. God prunes you all the way back. And if you've ever gone to an actual vineyard and you see the, the vines, they start to grow out quite a ways. And I think a lot of us, we think like God's like Mr. Miyagi and he's just trimming this little bush and making us really pretty and cute and what. No, no. They take that vine and they trim it all the way back. And if you walk in the vineyard, all you see is these dead pieces of branches that have been trimmed off. And he says, hey, this is what you get. I trim you all the way back to the way you came. Yeah. You remember when you first came in the kingdom? You weren't worried about all that stuff. You, yeah. you didn't even know about the road to romance. You didn't even know about that. You didn't even know about ICCM. You didn't even know about, like, am I going to be in the ministry? What mission team am I going? You didn't know about any of these things. All you cared about was God. All you knew is that you found the truth. It challenged your socks off. It was true. It, it, man, it, it was right. You knew that this is what the scriptures actually said and that you had to do it. Because Jesus died for you. And that's all that mattered anymore. And you got baptized. And then other things come in. And they choke and they make it unfruitful. And it's time to go back all the way. See, God has a question for you this morning. And how that question comes is in the form of pruning. It's going all the way back to what you were really here for. God has another question for you this morning. It's in Genesis 32. Genesis 32. In verse 22, it says, That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across a stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. And we all know from Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man had saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But the man replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. This is an amazing account of a man wrestling with a physical image of God. And here it says that God allowed Jacob to get everything he owns, his family and his possessions, on the other side of the river, and that he was alone. See, there's a time in your life where God gets you alone to wrestle with you. And let me tell you what, he doesn't wrestle fair all the time. He wrenches his hip as he wrestles with the man. 
And God's going to get you in, in a moment where there's nobody less to blame. There's no one left to point the finger at. There's nothing else. He's really got you. And all you could do is hold on and say, I will not let you go, God, until you bless me. You're going to have that moment as a Christian where everything in you wants to give up. And God wants to let you be there because he has a question for you. Who do you think you are? He goes, hey, Jacob. He actually doesn't say Jacob. He says, what's your name? He goes, my name is Jacob. Do you think God did not know his name? Of course he knew his name. But God wanted to see who Jacob thought he was. See, Jacob, the name means trickster or deceiver. Now, he then changes his name to Israel, and he becomes the father of the Israelites. The name Israel means prince with God. See, was Jacob already a prince with God? He actually was. He had already, because he was a trickster, gotten the blessing and the birthright out of his father, Isaac. Isaac was the heir that this old promise all the way back to Abraham was going to be fulfilled. And they eventually have these people that be numerous as the sand on the seashore. It was all going to happen through Isaac, the son. And he then gives that birthright to Jacob. Jacob already was a prince with God. God wanted to see who Jacob really thought he was. He goes, what's your name? He goes, I'm Jacob. I'm a trickster. He goes, no, Jacob. You're a prince. You're a prince with God. You know, the world tells us all types of things of who we are. It tells us we're a race. We're black, white, Latino, Asian. It tells us that we're a career. You're an accountant, a barista a security guard, a truck driver. It tells us we are Americans or Latin Americans. It tells us that we are introverts or extroverts. It tells us we are emotional or rational. It tells us that we are insecure, that we're arrogant, that we're prideful, that we're this, we're that, or we're ugly. And you know what? Some of these things may be true, as it was with Jacob. He was a trickster. Jacob was a trickster, but it's not who he was. It was a part of what he was like. But his true identity was Israel. See, in the same way, your identity is who you are when you said Jesus is Lord. That's who you actually are. Now, some of these things that you know that you're like, that's just a part of what you're like, but it's not who you are. Who you are is you are a prince or you're a princess of God. That you are a son and a daughter of God. And that's what God was trying to get through to Jacob. So that he could become Israel and become the father of the Israelites. But it says in Proverbs 23, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. I think one of the greatest challenges we have in our walks with God is to really believe who God says we are. Let's look over here. Let's look over here in Isaiah 6. 
God tells us who we are. He, tell us that, he tells us that we are a holy nation. He tells us that we are a royal priesthood. He tells us that we are the family of God. He tells us that we are brothers of Jesus. He tells us that we are Christ ambassadors. And the Bible is an account of God trying to get man to believe the reality of their identity. He comes to Gideon. He goes, hey, you're a mighty warrior. Gideon goes, I am the least of the least of the least. Was Gideon a mighty warrior? Absolutely he was. Did he go on to do great things? Absolutely he did. He tells Peter, you are the little rock. And you are going to be a huge part of my kingdom. Was, even though Peter denied Jesus three times, did he not open up the doors to the kingdom of God? And I believe this morning, God wants to get us to see that you're not just a part of another church service, that you are the actual kingdom of God. Amen. My third and final point, Isaiah 6. It says in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high, exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two of the wings that covered their face, with two that covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the throngs of the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, To whom shall I send, and who will go before us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The last question God has for you this morning is, Will you go? Will you go? The amazing depiction Isaiah gives us here is you have the physical temple of God. And there's this throne of God up in the sky, above the temple. And there's these heavenly creatures flying around God. And, and they're, they're going before God. They're going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God is a king. And he's got this long robe with a long train. You ever seen one of the brides? And they have this train that goes down very far. And he's got this train all the way from the sky that goes. And it fills the temple of God. Let's turn on Ephesians 4 and get understanding of what this means. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. It says, Ephesians 4 verse 1. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bear one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you're called to one hope when you're called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who's over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ proportioned it. 
This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascend mean? That he also descended lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended on the higher and the heavens above. In order to fill the whole universe, it was he who gave some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Here, this very challenging passage, it says that there's only one God. There's only one spirit. There's only one baptism. There's only one father. And there's only one church. There's only one true people of God. Jesus said, I am the way and the, the truth and the life. He didn't say, I am the ways. He says, there's only one real way to follow me. And here it's, it quotes from the book of Psalms. It says, and he gave grace to us. And that's why it says that God, he extended on high and he led captives in his train. That train is that robe that goes into the temple of God. What is the temple of God supposed to represent? The church. See, we are those captives on that train. We were in slavery, and God freed us. That's why he starts the scripture by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord. He says, God has freed us, and now we're in the temple with God, riding his train. And he says, because of this, I give gifts to men so that we can build up the kingdom of God. See, God wants to ask you a question. Are you willing to use your talents, your ability, your time, everything you got, and are you willing to go? You know, it's the first two letters of the gospel, G-O. That means go. He wants to know if you're willing to go. Are you willing to go and plant a church? Are you willing to go in the full-time ministry? Are you willing to go and lead that Bible talk? Are you willing to go and be an ICCM? Are you willing to go and do whatever it takes so that we can see the world one in our day? Jesus made it very clear. If you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, the Christian life is a going forward and never going backwards. What do we sing right after somebody gets baptized? No turning back. No turning back. You know, as a church, we just gave birth to twins called Special Missions and the Indianapolis Church. The Lord willing, I believe, is going to have their first baptism today. And any mother knows that when you have a baby, one baby, it does a number to your body. It does something to you. Have twins, I don't know about none of that. But we just gave birth to twins. And let me tell you what, it's done a number on the body here in San Francisco. We've definitely felt the effects of it. But it's time for all of us to answer the question of God, and go, I will go. I will stand in the gap in the East Bay. I will lead that Bible talk. I am willing to do it. And I'm very excited to announce that even though we planted a church just a month ago, not even, that this time next year, this church of only 240 disciples is going to plant its second church in two years, and we're going to plant Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> Who's going to go? Who's going to go? Because we're going. Somebody's going. 
Somebody will raise their hand, and somebody will get pointed to and say, we need you to go. When, when a church plants a church, it hurts the church. It hurts the church. It does something to it. It orphans relationships. A lot of us, Jeremiah was a father in the faith, an uncle in the faith. Julie was a mother in the faith. Some with the Gibsons who left. We only got one Gibson left now. We got, at least we got Colin Janelle left. But man, it, it hurts relationships. And I believe that when you get in these times like this, you've got to go back to the thing that really brought you here to begin with. And for me, there's a scripture that I look at when I'm kind of in that spot and I take communion. And it's in John 21. Let's close out there. John 21 and verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will dress you and lead you where you did not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. He says, hey, Peter, do you really love me? Peter goes, you know that I love you. Here, Jesus says, phileo, are you my friend, Peter? Do you have a friendship for me? He goes, he goes, Jesus, you know I'm your friend. You know I phileo you. And he says, well, feed my sheep. Then he asks him a second time. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? Am I really even your friend? He goes, you know that you are my friend. He says, take care of my sheep then. He says it three times because why? Peter denied three times. He goes, Peter, do you agape me? Have you made a decision to love me no matter what it happens to you? Because you didn't love me enough to go to a cross not so long ago. Are you willing to love me no matter what this gets you, how good or how bad it may be? Because Jesus, you know all things. You know that I agape you. I'm making a decision today. I'll never turn back. He says, well, Peter, I know you have. Because when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go, which was not to the cross when I went. But when you're older, somebody's going to lead you to that cross. And this is how you're going to die. But Peter, you've got to follow me. I read this because for me, doing what I do is not just about me and God. It's about me 
God and God's people. And whenever I'm feeling funky spiritually, whenever I feel like, man, I got I to gotta go forward. See, Christianity is about growing. If you stop growing, you start dying. And if I go, man, I'm not growing, I got I to gotta shake out of that, I go back to John 21, the way I came. I remember in 2010 walking into a clubhouse in Long Beach, and I went on the mission team with Kip in 2007, and Kip had a way of building a church where it felt like it was a GLC every Sunday, even though we were only 42 disciples who planted that church. And that first year, even only with 42, we had 108 baptisms that year. And it was exciting to see what God was doing. And, I, and then I fell away like Peter. I fell away. And I expected to come back and see the Rose Bowl. I expected to see a coliseum of disciples, and it wasn't that way. Instead, I walked into the south region. Sarah was leading at the time with Colton Roan. And they're meeting just in a community center, an apartment complex. And it was just a few people. And you could tell it had been a battle. And I looked at them, and for the first time I understood, these were my people. These were my countrymen. These were my brothers and sisters. And I left them because I wanted to go do the crazy things I wanted to go do in the world. I left them. I said, that's it, I'm done. See, for me, on that day, and today, again, it's about God and his people. And because it's about God and his people, it makes me renew and go back the way I came. God is asking us again this morning, is God still your reward? Is he still the thing you hope to get out of this? Do you still want to go back the way you came? Do I see myself the way God sees me, that I am a prince in the kingdom of God. And am I still willing to do whatever it takes for this world to be one in this day? Let's go back the way we came, and let's answer the, the creator's questions this morning. Amen. I bring you greetings from Silicon Valley.